Good morning, Linworth. Good morning out there. Hope you're doing well. Boy, don't insult winter. That's, that's, that's good. That's good. I have a feeling who that was, by the way. Yes, I thought so. I ran across a story that I thought would help introduce our second part here of this uh, little mini-series within Proverbs called Sexual Freedom Revisited. It's about a group of Minnesota teens who were apprehended recently after attempting to steal a cake from a local grocery store. As if the embarrassment of getting caught by the authorities wasn't enough punishment, it was then discovered that the cake the group had stolen was not even real. It was a cardboard display cake. The grocery store decided not to press charges, but the local police department and news station did find an opportunity to poke some fun, posting a story with phrases like, hashtag no cake for you, or hashtag not so sweet surprise. <laughs> <laughs> that was clever. And it, um, it does connect, doesn't it, to this area of sexual freedom and what the promise is. Last week, in our walk through Proverbs, we challenged the prevailing cultural attitudes towards sexual freedom. That being, having sex with whomever and whenever we want, as long as no one gets hurt. In contrast, we said the Bible offers freedom or human flourishing within a form. That form being sex within the promise of marriage between a man and a woman. Now this week we're going to expand on what we learned and here is your outline. I'm going to try to answer these three questions. Number one, in relation to sexual sin, why does sin management never work? Secondly, what does it mean to be indecisively decisive? And thirdly, what is the price of not thinking enough or not talking enough about sex? We're going to work through those three questions. Then I'm going to ask, we have some special guests this morning, I'm going to ask Mark and Kathy McCarthy to join me for the second half of the message. Mark and Kathy are longtime friends of Linworth as well as licensed counselors. Uh, they are a valuable resource in this particular arena, and I'd like you to meet them and to hear a little piece of their story. Now, for where we are in Proverbs, we concluded last week at the end of chapter 5. Then, in chapter 6 through uh, verses 1 through 19, there are a variety of topics, and Nick is going to cover those next week. We're going to really skip ahead to beginning in Proverbs 6, verse 20. And in Proverbs 6, verse 20, the father, uh, again, the author, who is a father writing to a son, makes various appeals, covers a lot of different topics. And then the emphasis to the end of the chapter is that the consequences of sexual sin cannot be escaped. They will burn you. And so this section confronts two of the biggest lies surrounding sexual sin. One, no one will find out. Two, no one will get hurt. So that section really takes on those particular lies. That takes us to chapter 7, which where we're going to spend the, our time today before Mark and Kathy come up. And it begins in a similar fashion with, Son, don't forget my words. 
prize wisdom. And then the first five verses I'd like us to read together. So why don't you stand and uh, I'll read these to get us really introduced into the topic. I'll have you stay standing and we'll, we'll pray together. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And to insight, you are my relative. They will keep you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words. This is God's word. And say with me, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power of your word, the love and truth, which is their foundation. And I pray that, Father, this morning would not so much be a lecture or the passing on of information about this part of our lives, but it would be an opportunity for us to see Jesus and to receive whatever gift he desires to give to his sons and daughters this morning. May our hearts be ready and may our hearts be shaped for wisdom. May our hearts be shaped to be able to receive what you want to give us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You can take a seat. If you'll indulge me for a moment, I, I, I just feel this needs to be mentioned again. It was a potential obstacle last week that might keep some of us from hearing this passage. And it deals with, again, why does there seem to be blame on the seductive woman? And again, what I want to repeat is that, remember, we're being brought into a conversation between a father to a son. And over and against those who accuse the Bible of it, the Bible is not misogynist. As further proof of this, when we get to the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul gives instructions to both husband and wife that were groundbreaking at the time. Paul wrote that the husband's body does not belong to him, but to his wife. And this struck at the ancient double standard that men were expected and allowed to have multiple sexual partners, but if a woman did, she was loathed. Paul is doing nothing less here than redefining marriage. Tim Keller points out that in the Roman world, marriage was about property rights and legal heirs. If sexual pleasure was pursued, it was pursued by the man outside the marriage. Confronting the sexual freedom of his day, Paul firmly plants sexual pleasure and satisfaction inside the mutual exclusive love of covenanted marriage. Now, what I just want us to understand is that nothing like this had ever been said before. And if followed, it protects and it lifts up women. Okay, let's go back to our outline. And let's look at that first question. Why does sin management never work? I'll define sin management in a moment. Let's first look at verse 1 in Proverbs 2, where it says, Store up my commands. 
related words for store up are to conceal, to hide, to treasure. And I love this imagery. You store up things that are valuable to you. You hide away things that have a future value. When I was a boy, it was my baseball cards. Now, we hide away family pictures, pictures of kids and grandparents. And we have multiple albums of pictures and shoe boxes of pictures. Yes, we still have some of those. Of course, most of our recent pictures our friend Amazon stores for us. But you hide things away that you want to protect for a future day. This is the picture here of storing up the Father's wisdom, which is ultimately God's word. Going on, he says, guard it as the apple of your eye. Meaning, guard it like you would your eye if some foreign object was rushing towards it. Like a BB from a Red Rider BB gun, for example. But seriously, think about how vigilantly you protect your eyes. Going on. Write God's word on the tablet of your heart, as if carefully etched in stone. See God's word as an intimate friend or a very close family member. What is all this getting at? It is not enough to passively listen to God's word. It must be actively reflected on, memorized, thought over, discussed with others, incorporated so deeply into your being that it shapes your desires and actions. God's wisdom stored up will prepare you for any situation and any temptation you might face in the future, ready when it's needed. A heart shaped by wisdom and filled by wisdom can withstand temptation, including sexual sin. This is what the Father is getting after. Translating these verses into the New Testament, they are very similar to John chapter 15. This is where Jesus likens our relationship to him as a branch to a vine. Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches. We are organically united with him. His life streams into our life in the same way life-giving nourishment flows from a branch to a vine. The key is abiding. Jesus invites us to abide in him, to remain in him, to stay in constant connectedness to him by storing his word inside of us. Look at John 15, verse 7. So clear. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. His words breathing and pulsating in you help you to stay in his love and to pray closer in alignment with the Father's will. God, God's word in us produces fruit. It helps you to walk in the power of the Spirit. In Galatians 5.24, Paul said this, So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Flesh here means sinful nature. It is not your body per se, but the inner person that has been disordered by sin. What do I mean by disordered? What I mean is that sin causes our hearts 
to love the wrong, wrong things? And how do we reorient our loves so that we love what God loves? It is by getting his word inside of us. God's word in us, according to Paul, gives us the spiritual power to crucify the impulse of self-gratification. Now, we've talked about this many times. But when it comes to sexual sin, most of us resort to sin management. Meaning, we no longer focus on loving God more, but our sole focus becomes managing this sin. Our goal in life is no longer to become like Jesus, but to master this distressing behavior. And I think we default to sin management, especially in addressing sexual sin. Why? Because of its deep hold on us. Because of the level of shame and guilt we feel around this can be very intense. And sometimes, yes, sometimes, evangelical Christian teaching has even unknowingly fostered this. How? By turning the struggle against sexual sin into a kind of do-or-die Rubicon upon which victory or defeat defines your essence as a believer. Sin management focuses on only changing the behavior without changing the underlying motives and desires. It is like pushing down one end of the inner tube, thinking you've got it submerged, only to have the other end burst out of the water on the other side. To see change, to see victory, we must get after the heart. What you love must be transformed. And God's word in us, helping us to connect to Jesus, making his life and power accessible to us, that's who works the transformation. You know, some who have given up on church tried to change through the pathway of sin management. They tried to conform their behaviors while keeping God at a relational distance. They sought to change through resolve or self-discipline or even dabbled in spiritual practices such as prayer. But because their heart remained untouched, because the word was not etched on its tablets, change remained elusive. And having tried church for many years, having now assumed the gospel really doesn't work, they are now virtually allergic to the gospel itself. And, and, and only the power of God can really break through that. But their attempt was only to manage sin. And this never gets us where we want. Let's look at the second question in the outline. What does it mean to be indecisively decisive? <laughs> Let's go back to our text, and I want to read another segment of it, beginning in verse 6. I'm going to read through verse 6 through verse 13. And the story is now told through the eyes of an omniscient narrator, beginning in verse 6. It's a story. At the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice, 
And I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house. At twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark night set in, then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She is unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and kissed him. And with a brazen face, she said. You can read that next section on your own. She goes on to promise him this amazing, erotic, all-night love feast. Her husband is gone, she assures him, and he won't be home for a long time. And her strategy is successful. She persuades him. Persuades him. She seduces him. And now look at the first phrase in verse 22. It says, all at once. He followed her. All at once. In a flash, he becomes very decisive. Other versions say suddenly or right away. This is striking because he has been painted as very indecisive. He strolls along, seemingly without a plan. The narrator describes him as a simple man, meaning easily misled, aimless, naive. She must persuade him. Yet at the same time, it is equally clear he's willing to play with fire. He has drifted into trouble. He was courting disaster, as one commentator put it. He walked towards the direction of her house. He chose the right place. The light was fading at twilight. He chose the right time. The point, I think, is this. He was making many little compromises along the way, even with a mind not made up. But those little compromises opened up his vulnerability and made his decisiveness, in the end, quick and inevitable. Affairs or illicit sexual relationships typically don't happen in a moment. They unfold because of smaller, seemingly harmless decisions. In the New Testament, Paul said it this way, instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. There is a giving in that begins with the mind. And if the simple man in our story had followed Paul's urging, he would have steered away from her house that night. Let's finish the chapter there, beginning at verse 22. All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading to the chambers of death. The word pictures here focus on the simple man being completely unaware, oblivious to the consequences. His focus is on the bait, the moment, the pleasure. 
So he pays a price. There is a death of sorts. And this is our third question. What is the price of not thinking about sex enough? Now, I don't mean to say that we don't think about it enough. That's not what I'm saying. No, what I'm saying is we don't think enough of it. We treat sex as a commodity, something we can buy at the store or easily dispose of, something we can, or someone we can freely trade and exploit, rather than as something beautiful and sacred and holy. Sex for him and for her is only recreation. And we get some insight into her heart in verse 10. She has a crafty intent. And the implication here is that her heart is closely guarded. Now, her dress is unguarded. She reveals much, but her heart is guarded. And this is borne out more in the next verse, saying, her feet never stay at home. She's not content. She is restless. She, does, uh, she doesn't know the satisfaction. She doesn't know the satisfaction of closeness in a human relationship. What she desperately seeks through sexual intimacy always remains beyond her grasp. Bruce Waltke said it this way, that the temptress promises sexual love without erotic restraint, but she refuses to make the fundamental commitment of self to him that is required for true love. Her sort of eroticism leads to complications and even death, so it must be rejected. Sexual love has been called by some a commitment-making mechanism, meaning it draws two people together. But when we give our bodies without giving our hearts, something inside feels the tension. Emotions that are unprepared for such a commitment must be turned off, tamped down, the valve turned off, and a death of sort takes place, a split between our actions and our emotions. Such vulnerable and ten the tenderness that is required for lovemaking was designed by the Creator to follow the giving of the heart in the promise of a covenant love forever. And even if you do not believe in God, it doesn't make that physical, emotional split in your mind any less real because it's hardwired. It's embodied into each of us. David Atkinson said it this way, to have a full sexual relationship with somebody is to give physical expression to what is meant by a covenanted, promised relationship that is stable, faithful, permanent. To say physically, I am giving all of myself to you while emotionally and spiritually holding back from a covenanted commitment is in fact to live a lie, a split in personality, which is ultimately stressful and destructive. So there is, yes, a death of sorts. So we've answered our three questions here this morning about sin management and so forth. You know, this morning here we've done a little mini-series within these two weeks. 
And many of us struggle with sexual sin. And this all might feel hopeless to you. Indeed, in both of our chapters, neither end well, do they? Neither end well. There seems to be no hope, no chance for redemption. And without the grace of God, without the mercy of God, that is where things stand. That is where the law takes us to a place of judgment. But we know because of the grace of God, this does not have to be the last word. The trajectory can change. The arrow can point north again. So with that being said, to discuss more of this hope and how we can change, let me invite Mark and Kathy to come on up. We give them a nice, warm Linworth welcome. Thanks, Nick. Can you do this again? Sure, I think so. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Mark, I at least knew you first. Our relationship goes back so long, and so long at, here at Linworth. With a long relationship here. Uh, Mark has spoken here before on a Sunday morning. Uh, you did some training for us. Uh, uh, it was training lay counselors, so to speak, a, a listening team, we called them. Uh, you have counseled a number of our members, and you've counseled me at a very um, challenging season in my life. And I still um, remember that, and the residual of that still is with me. So I, it's a chance I to just say want to say you. it's a, you ought to count it a great privilege to have a pastor who's willing to get help and receive counsel and also talk about it. Uh, it's yeah. the, sometimes that can break down some barriers. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Tell us first about your children, just a little bit about your family. I, can I start? Yeah. <laughs> well, we have two children, um, adult children. Our oldest daughter, Kylie, is 31, and she just, just this week, received her diploma, in, uh, her master's work from Ashland Seminary in, in counseling. So, uh, Following we're real, in dad and mom's footsteps. <laughs> so we're real proud of her. <laughs> our son is 28, and he um, is married to our lovely daughter in love, Allie. And um, he's a uh, part-time well, kind of a part-time youth worship pastor and also does a lot of techie stuff, teaching the, the tech teams at Dublin Baptist Church. So, um, and right now, go ahead. And we have a wonderful grandson, Lincoln, two and a half years old, and, and they, they live with us, actually, so we get to see our grandson every day. And he comes in and jumps on us in the morning and wants to see Baba. Papa. I've picked up that you've enjoyed that. Oh, my season. word. It can be challenging sometimes. But we do love it. We really do. Yeah. We have two purposes this morning. One is to uh, introduce Mark and Kathy as a follow-up resource for you if you need help in this area and in marriage in general. We'll talk about marriage uh, in a moment. And then Mark and Kathy are also going to share a little piece of their story, which helps define um, part of their passion for ministry, but just on the, just as counselors in general, talk a little bit about your educational and professional background, or a ministry background. Well, uh, I grew up in a Christian family. My dad was a pastor, and um, I kind of lived in the world some uh, after college, but then I decided to go 
go to seminary. So I went to seminary at Grace Theological Seminary, went into Lake Indiana, and I got uh, my M Masters of Divinity. And then Dr. Larry Crabb was there at the seminary at the time uh, having a Masters in Counseling uh, training. And so I got involved in that. And probably the best education is I met my wife, Kathy, there. So that's, <laughs> you can say, say a few words. Oh, I grew up in Winona Lake, Indiana. Uh, my dad was a professor at the seminary. And um, I got my bachelor's and master's degree in music education and was teaching music here in Worthington. And um, <clears throat> after you know six months of teaching, I lost my voice, got nodules, had to get out of teaching. And I'm like, oh, great, what do I do with my life now? <laughs> and so I ended up going back um, home to, because I'd been reading some books by Larry Crabb, and I was really impressed with his ability to help people from a much deeper place. And so I wanted to go get myself trained. So I went through the counseling program there, the master's in biblical counseling, and that's where I met Mark. And a year later, we got married, and uh, we moved back to Columbus, got involved in a church, and we've, uh, you know, Ever since then, been uh, well, really before then, we've been leading small groups and um, you know discipling people, trying to help people learn and grow in their faith walks with God. Did that answer your yeah. question? Yeah, great, great. Well, so we speed up to 2012, and there was an interruption in all of this. Massive interruption. Tell us. Tell us your story. Yeah, um, in late 2012, December of 2012, uh, kind of under duress by a friend, I confessed to Kathy that a year and a half previous to that, I had had an extramarital affair. We were pastors at the time. We were at Vineyard Columbus. We were the support and recovery. We were sharing the, the pastoral position of support and recovery. So... Um, can imagine uh, how painful this was, but uh, I can really relate to what Chris was saying, um, that sexual sin in particular causes uh, massive shame and guilt, uh, and it's, that shame and guilt produces a, a strong move toward secrecy, keeping it, keeping it secret, not coming out of the open, and so that, that caught me in its trap. I wasn't open and honest, and it led to having an affair, and that just blew up our lives, of course, and devastated Kathy and my child, our, our children, and you want to pick, pick up yeah, some? Yeah, um, it was devastating. I'm the last person in the world who I ever would have guessed would have to go through something like this. And we were, you know, like we met in seminary and we committed our lives to God and, you know, we were active in churches leading. And so it just, I just couldn't wrap my head around it for quite a long time. It was devastating. He lost his jobs, didn't have a way to make money. And so just, it was just onslaught of just like, whoa, surreal, what's going on? But God was so faithful during that time to um, come close. And I really pressed into him and into a few real, you know, wonderful support people and saw a spiritual director and just really, um, I, I didn't have to quit my job at the church, but I couldn't do the work. So I resigned 
um, and then just kind of didn't know what I was going to do. Ended up, you know, spent a lot of time with my dad at the time. But um, anyway, so God really was faithful to to speak and give me direction. Just, you know, what, what's the next step, Lord? What do I do? And um, he really led me to kind of distance myself from Mark and give Mark time to um, really do the deep healing work that if he was going to do it, was going to be long right. and hard. Right. Sometimes it's... Sometimes it's important. Sometimes to not have that active relationship that you can sort of, in a sense, hide behind or, or, or do your recovery work for that relationship uh, when it's important to do it for yourself and for God. So that was... That was, uh, I think, important. Yeah. In so, our case, and, and But the one thing that, uh, the piece of hope that God always kind of kept reminding me, like, well, if Mark will uh, really work hard and build a solid year of uh, sobriety and really, you know, like walk out his repentance in a sober-minded way, you know, maybe something new can develop in the yeah. future. Yeah, she so always gave you that, that hope, yeah. So then over the next three years, really, um, we began to see just real changes. The kids first started noticing real changes in him. Because we weren't having much contact at all. Yeah. Right. And, um, and so it was just quite incredible to see God beginning to peel off layers and, and grow humility and more honesty in yeah. him. And, and I really got into the recovery. My own recovery was really painful. To, I, I stayed at Vineyard Columbus, and I pursued... Um, a uh, ministry called 180, which is a uh, ministry for men with sexual brokenness. I got involved in Celebrate Recovery. Uh, talk about a humbling process. That was very humbling, but it was necessary. Um, and uh, I also got involved in a, in a, with a group of men where we would share intimately and honestly about what was going on in our lives. Um, and seven years later, we, we, we still meet to this day every week uh, to, to share our lives with each other. And you can't do this alone. I, you can't recover from this kind of thing alone. And if you try to, you'll probably end up in, in defeat. You need support. You need to come out of the secrecy. So it's really yeah. important. So while he was working hard... I got my own counseling, too, for two years. Yeah, yeah. Um, so while he was working hard on his uh, journey of healing and wholeness, um, the kids and I, who were 19 and 21 at the time and lived at home, um, we all had a, a long, hard journey of processing our own pain and learning to forgive in a deep and meaningful way. And that's no easy task when you've, your life has been devastated. And um, so it was, it was really a joy, though, to watch both of our kids dig deep into this journey of forgiveness and, uh, f you know, like admitting and owning how devastated they were and processing that grief with the Lord. And, and with me. And with you. Yeah. So um, God was faithful to lead us and show us the way. And um, I feel like that's really um, formed how we now want to help other people with some of the deep pain that, there's, right. that they struggle with. And in 2015, uh, we started to date some, and then I decided I wanted to be rebaptized. so we arranged to have a, a baptism at a friend's house of the pool, and 30 of our close friends and supporters of mine and Kathy um, 
And that was uh, that was meaningful for you. Yeah, and encouraging because there were nine guys that volunteered to share how they'd seen Mark be transformed over the past three years, and um, a couple men that I very highly respect who've been involved with uh, ministry for years and years um, said that they'd never seen anybody pursue their recovery quite as hard as Mark. And praise be to God. Yeah, really. So I mean that gave me some encouragement that I wasn't being foolish to try again or whatever, you know, because I could really see the changes. So So we got remarried in 2016 then? March. March of 2016 coming up up on what is that? Five years. Five years, yeah. But we don't really know what to say because we were married 28 years before that. So, you know, when said, oh, how long have you been married? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I just want to say that, you know, th- this area of sexual sin is, it, it's so addictive and yet it's so filled with shame that so many men, especially some women too, uh, just live in the shadow and live in secrecy and, and, and the power of it can't can't be broken, so it, it needs to come out into the open. And so, uh, Mark, and at least in your, for you, uh, so the, the ministry, I, together, I, I, you could clarify it for me, but I know that you're working with men specifically. Yes. Men that are struggling with sexual yeah, addiction. Not, not just with sexual, but you know, that's but a specialty that's one area. One big facet of it. That's, that's a specialty area. And this has certainly helped shape your capacity to oh, yeah. recognize what they're going through. And oh, yes, and relate. empathize, understand, have, have sort of power to intervene out of, out of my own yeah. experience. And it, it, it is a sort of a safe place for guys because they know I've been there and yeah. I've failed. And, you started a the ministry then called Nathan's Cry. Nathan's w- Cry. What's the... What's the Origin of that name. The, the origin of that Nathan's name is, is uh, you know, David, David and his sin with Bathsheba, and murder of her husband, and uh, God sends Nathan, the prophet, to him and tells this little story about, you know, how this rich man took the poor man's um, lamb. lamb that that was a pet to him and sl- slaughtered it, and and so. Nathan comes to him and tells that story to David, and David gets all incensed, and, and, then, and then Nathan says, you are the man. That's the cry. That's Nathan's cry. Not, not, it's, it's not like a, a judgment. It's more of a, you need to be busted out so that you can heal and, and grow and change and, be, repent. and repent. So it's, it's grace, but it's truth, too. It's, That's really good. That's really good. So we want to encourage, really, any of you that are struggling. Um, in this area with sexual sin or addictions, um, areas you can't break out of, uh, we, we believe that Mark and Kathy are one great resource for you to get grace and help in this area. But certainly, you've got to be willing to take that first step and say, I That's need hard. I need takes help. courage. Oh, I, I need help. Oh, it's, man. It's challenging. It's but there is hope. I think that's what we're trying to breathe here is right. that there's hope for this. Um, if you press in and do the work and are vulnerable and honest, honest yeah. and get help, yeah. there's hope. Yeah. yeah, It's powerful. It's powerful. Um, one last question I want to ask you is that you also counsel together couples who, this may be an issue, it may not be an issue, right. but helping couples, and you do what's called marriage coaching. Can you describe what marriage coaching is and how it differs from marriage counseling? 
Yeah. Um, well, the way we do marriage coaching has certainly certainly has elements of, of marriage counseling in it, of course. But um, but we, uh, for one thing, we do long sessions with people. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to marriage counseling, but you know usually it's 50 or 60 minutes, and then you're just getting rolling. You're just getting into something, and then you have to end, and then it's a week or two, and and then we forget what we forget what we were talking about, and. So we do we do long sessions so we can kind of drill drill down and we do it together. So you got the the the, the male perspective, the husband perspective. You got the female perspective, wife perspective. So the wife feels safe, the husband feels safe because you got represented. You know, you're represented. Um, so that's that's powerful. People find that powerful. Um, and in two and a half hours, you can you can really dig deep. Even though the time it seems like a really long time, but it goes by very fast. Um, so we, we also um, have the, you know, we have two offices in our home where we work, and so we can break up for, if we need to, to talk through some things with I mean, me with the woman and, yeah. and Mark. Because often there's individual hurts and pains and oh, things that haven't right. been resolved or forgiven, you know, that, that individuals need mm-hmm. to work through it too to help the, the marriage. So we right. kind of incorporate both of those. Right. So at the same time that we teach new skills for how to relate to one another, we also help each individual with processing what's in their heart. And um, so it's sort of a... And we have people buy packages like four, four two and a half hour sessions uh, and they pay up front and there's no refunds. So this, <laughs> this encourages people to stick with the process. It's just easy to bail out if you do. When just pay hard. as you go. And, well, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't like what they said to me, so we're done. <laughs> you know, but if you have a little extra motivation, you, you've paid for your package up front. And, you know, so anyway. It's been really good. Plus, you know, we can spend time praying with, uh, with them, and we send long summaries about what, was, what we accomplished in the session and what we want them to do. In the meantime, we give homework and, you know, things to read and things to do, and we follow up follow on that up on in, the ne- in the next session. We've so. heard so many stories. So, well, I was in counseling, and yeah, they either didn't give homework or they give homework, but then they, didn't, then they don't follow up on it. They don't, they don't talk yeah. about it the next time. So, well, we do that. We, we really press <laughs> into that. Yeah. So, so I mean, I think overall our passion is just to help people connect more deeply with, uh, with God and with, and with growing in self-awareness about what's in their hearts and being, learning to be honest about that and, and learning how to process that well with the Lord. And, and that's what, what then uh, fuels the ability to love better, you know? And, and, and Kathy does individual work with primarily women. I yeah. mean, Mm-hmm. And uh, spiritual direction and counseling, and she's she's powerful in the life life lives of women. So Thank you. it's not That's just great. me doing individual with men. It's yeah, or she does. That's great. Um, Mark and Kathy's contact information is in the e letter. It's in your Bible app. The ministry is called Nathan's Cry. You can search for Nathan's Cry and get it. Thank you guys. Will you give them a warm thank you for being so vulnerable? with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thank you. Okay, let me just close up here. Just one concluding statement, looking at Jesus as we finish this mini-series within a series. I want to close with us remembering that Jesus pursued the sexually broken, and he offered wholeness. You know, it was actually one of the 
essential definers of his ministry. Um, if the caustic rhetoric that so often is a part of the culture wars today, if that reveals the church's heart towards the sexually broken, then the Christian church has a long way to go in following the master. He balanced the preaching of truth and grace. He focused on the soul. And he attracted those who were ready for change. Those who had been burned by sexual sin. Who realized the failure of its promises. One of those was Mary Magdalene, who we meet in Luke's gospel. Perhaps she heard Jesus preaching the kingdom. And she saw something in his demeanor. She heard something in his voice. She heard something in his words. So much so she, was, she dared to enter the home of a leading Pharisee, her a prostitute. This was so taboo. It took unbelievable courage for her to do that. But she wanted to thank Jesus. She wanted to symbolize perhaps a new beginning. This whole scene unfolds in Luke chapter 7. And Jesus looks first to Simon, the religious leader, whose greeting of him was very cold and aloof. Here's what the scriptures say. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as God. Her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Her heart and her loves were changed by Jesus, by seeing Jesus. And then Jesus turns to her and she says, your sins are forgiven. I think those are the perfect words to conclude this little mini-series. Your story can begin again. Will you come to him? He will receive you. He will rejoice over you. He will renew you. He will make you new again in heart and in body. You can be cleansed and made a new creation by coming to Jesus. After our closing prayer and benediction, I want to invite any other pastors or prayer team members to come down, and we'll be here. And if you would like to receive prayer and receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit this morning, we would like to pray over you, for you. Or you might have someone in your life. I did this earlier, first service. There may be a person in your life that you love who desperately needs prayer in this area. We'll both of us will stand in the gap together and pray for that person. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, bring now healing and the gifts 
and the resources that are needed by each man and woman in this room whose stories are so different, whose experiences vary one from the other, whose hurts and pains are unique to their story. Yet, Jesus, you are the uniter of all. You know each heart and can give to each person what they need in moving them towards wholeness, towards integration. Lord, those whose personalities and their person feel split, they might even feel to themselves monstrous, but you, Father, can bridge that split. You can heal that divide, bringing mind and emotion and body together to be integrated, all under the lordship of Jesus. And I pray that you would do that, Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Will you stand for our closing benediction? Thanks again for being here this morning, Linworth, and thank you for your courage to wade in to these challenging but so real topics. May our love, Linworth, abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight that we may be able to discern what is best and may be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God forever. Amen and amen. We'll see you next week.